All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. This is our second session on the doctrine of sin. And we're going to basically talk about, the, the subject is sin is lawlessness. So we're going back to that definition of sin. But the reason why I want to go back to the issue of sin is lawlessness is because we ha- I want to talk about the important issue of how do we determine what is sin and what isn't. And that's a, a very important issue that we have to think deeply about because we constantly face that task of trying to figure out what is sin and what isn't. So I want to talk more about uh, that, set the problem up, and then talk about the what the Bible says. And hopefully we'll make our way through the slides relatively quickly. Even as I say that, you all laugh in your hearts. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray together. (laughs) Father, we thank you for our time together again today. We love you because you have first loved us. We praise your Son, our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is even now reigning at your right hand, who has loved us and given himself for us, who is both the Lamb who was slain and the the lion of the tribe of Judah who reigns over all. We thank you for the hope uh, that we have in him, the hope even now of peace with you through his sacrifice and the hope of eternal life and fellowship with him forever and that even the grave itself, even death, is an enemy conquered by Christ. And uh, so we thank you for your saving work, your redemptive love, and your ongoing presence with and care for us. And we pray that even now as we have gathered for worship and as we begin our day by studying the doctrine of sin, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand this important subject. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start by talking about the fact that There is moral confusion, moral confusion, first of all, in the world. Um, And what I mean by moral confusion is we have trouble defining what is right and wrong, right? What is good and evil? What is sin and what is righteous? Righteousness, although we don't use those words anymore. Those are, of course, in many ways, Christian words. But for, for instance, in the world, what things are considered good? Religious tolerance? Of course, except for Christianity. Moral tolerance. Of course, except for Christian morality. Uh, Being true to yourself. And not letting social pressures, especially Christianity, suppress your natural desires. That's a good. Uh, Protect and preserve nature. Except for your bodies. Personal freedom to live how you want unless it contradicts progressive values. And by progressive, I mean just sort of whatever era you're in, it's assumed that there's this, we're we're in this process of progression toward something better. So progress is always better. And so wherever you're at, the, the new sort of enlightened values of the day if the way you want to live contradicts that, then that's a problem. But otherwise, you should be free to live how you want. Promoting diversity and equity, though conservatives and Christians are often excluded. Okay, so these would be goods. And I'm, I have a, an intended purpose for this. I'm not just being snarky. I just want to 
I'm putting those parenthetical statements in there for a reason, and we'll talk about it in a second. What about evil? Well, imposing your own religion on others, unless the religion is pluralism, then it is imposed. Another evil in our day is imposing your morality on others, unless, of course, it is the progressive values of the day, then we must impose them on people. Saying that certain natural desires are wrong and need to be restrained is an evil, although even that has limits, right? I mean, there are certain desires that come naturally that we would say are wrong, even today. There are still limits. Utilizing natural resources to serve human interests is wrong, except unless it is for the elite, you know. So the, the classic example of that is, you know, elite around the world flying to <laughs> conferences on carbon emissions in their private jets. Suggesting that people shouldn't be able to do what they want with their own bodies. Unless, of course, it is during a pandemic in which they will tell you what to do with your body. (laughs) Meritocracy and disparities. And what I mean is the idea that people should, people's uh, position like in in their career or in education should be determined by the merit of their deeds. Like have they, their test scores or how well they do, that is considered to be a moral evil in our day because it leads to disparities. Um, Now, of course, when it comes to their own children, their own neighborhoods, they want to live that way, but in terms of society. As a whole, that's considered an, an evil that needs to be overcome. Now, my point in all of this is to say, okay, so maybe you don't agree with me, but the way I see it, these are at least, at some level, values of our modern culture. These are goods, these are evils. But my point in the parenthetical statement is that it's really not very consistent, is it? There's often contradictions within the values of our day. That, uh, you know, you could see someone uh, on a profanity-laced tirade against, you know, conservative position on something because they're being, they consider the position to be intolerant and abusive, right? And you're like, well, what about the profanity-laced tirade? You know, <laughs> like, isn't that? So the point is that in the values of our day, you see that it's very difficult to remain consistent. And that speaks to the fact that there's something uh, lacking in the values themselves, in, in the goodness or the evilness of, of their values. They, they, they can't really be consistent within their own value system. But my point is, these are examples of the moral confusion of the world. But the same is true in the church, that we see that there's moral confusion in the church as well. And what I'm going to do now is I want to talk about some values, good and evil, things that are considered good, things that are consider, considered evil in the church that I would say represent a level of moral confusion. Now, When I put these things up here, some of you may find yourself getting upset at something that I put up here. And I want to say that that's okay. You don't necessarily have to agree with me, but it shows that there is debate, that there is struggle over some of these things, and that we, even as Christians, are constantly in this situation where we have to evaluate 
whether something really is a sin or isn't. Okay? So first, unconditional love. Now, what I, that's considered a good in the church. Now, immediately, you might say, but that is a good. And I would say, well, understood a certain way, but if unconditional love means love without moral judgment, right? You just accept, love means that you accept everything and everyone, unconditional love. Well, then that, that would be an example of moral confusion, right? Another one, accept everyone into the church, in other words. That we, um, if you exclude anyone from the church, that's wrong. Or, that's, or that, that's wrong. The good would be we should accept everyone into our churches. Another one is ethnic diversity in the church. Now, the, what I mean by this is not that ethnic diversity in the church is a bad thing. I'm not saying that in and of itself, ethnic diversity in a church is not a moral good. What I'm saying is that we've made this into a moral principle, that a church that is more ethnically diverse is actually morally superior to a church that's less ethnically diverse. And if you start thinking about that, you think, wait a second, where is that in the scripture, right? But we've decided that ethnic diversity in and of itself is a moral good. And many times we just accept that. And many pastors actually and church leaders try, they take this into account when they look at their church. We don't have enough ethnic diversity. We need to try to increase the ethnic diversity of our church because that is a a moral good, inherent moral good, right? Pronoun hospitality was a big thing for a while. That we should, out of respect for people, use their preferred pronouns, right? God bless the USA. In other words, it's always right to say that God should bless, to ask God to bless the United States, and it would always be wrong to the idea that God wouldn't bless the United States. Well, think about it. (laughs) That's a moral value that would be confused. Say your prayers. I watch Andy Griffith's show. I love that show. Um, I should have put that up here. Watch the end of your <laughs> But he would say to Opie, have you said your prayers, right? Now, in other words, now is saying your prayers a bad thing? No, but the idea that just reciting prayers every night is somehow a moral good is more of a, uh, a sign of sort of traditional values than it is of actual biblical biblical morality where Jesus wants his people to pray but it's not just a matter of reciting prayers in fact he condemns just reciting prayers like the Gentiles do I love Jesus but not the church you hear Christians say that at times which when you start thinking of the way that Jesus talks about the church as the bo- his body you realize that's an incoherent statement I worship God in nature sometimes you'll hear that I don't like you know, the institutional church, the idea of going to a church service. My sanctuary is the lake or uh, the forest or my backyard with a cup of coffee. Moral evils. There are Christians who have bought the idea that the capitalist economic system is equivalent, inherently greedy, right? Um, There are people who say that in the church that any confronting of sin 
is inherently judgmental, right? Any con- if, you, if you confront my sin, you're being judgmental. There are those in the church that say that any talk of obedience, requiring obedience, is inherently legalistic, right? Okay, we just went through a, a pandemic where there were people in the church who were saying that to wear a mask, to not wear a mask was unloving. Now, I'm not trying to be snarky here, right? I'm just pointing out that Christians were faced with a moral issue, <laughs> right? There were Christians that were saying, if you wear a mask, then you're loving your neighbor. If you don't, you're not loving your neighbor. And that presented a, a moral conundrum for us. We had to say, is that true? And I'm not making necessarily a judgment here. I have my own view on this, but the fact is is we had to face that issue as a church. And that was throughout the country that we had to face that issue. So sometimes there are broader cultural things. Sometimes there's things that we have to ask in the moment. In particular, like now, no one's talking about this anymore. But for a while, that was a really big deal. What about church discipline is inherently abusive? Some Christians think that. Some Christians thought at a period of time that, remember this? When when BLM first was on the rise, and you probably all felt it. Like, if we don't support this, then then we're racist, right? So, that's an extremely volatile charge. And Christians, I don't know about you, but we, I think we all felt, we, maybe we had an opinion about it, but we felt the measure of social pressure, not only in our society, but within churches. What were we going to do? Were we going to support it? Were we not going to support it? And the idea of, on many Christians was if we do not support it, that's racism. What about not having a flag in church. If we don't have a flag in our church, that's unpatriotic. So sort of on the other side of the spectrum. What about the more, uh, in more fundamentalist circles, the idea that drinking any alcohol, dancing, or playing cards equals uh, what the Bible describes as worldliness. This is an issue, right? So my point in this, in putting all these things up here is to saying, This is the type of thing that when the rubber meets the road, we face these kinds of ethical issues, moral issues in the church. And we have to say that there is moral confusion around things like this. Sometimes there are things that we face in a short period of time. Sometimes there are more broad-based things. You know, is church discipline inherently abusive, right? So the question that we have to ask in all of this is... How do we know what's right and wrong, right? <laughs> Whether we face a very specific issue like should is not wearing a mask during a pandemic unloving or whether it's a more broad thing like, you know, I love Jesus but not the church. How do we make moral evaluations about these things? Because there is. There's moral confusion in the world and there's moral confusion in the church. People come down on different sides of these types of things. So, this is the question. What is sin and what isn't sin? On any of these kinds of issues, how do we figure it out? So, do you guys ever feel that pressure? When I put all those things up there, you guys ever felt that kind of pressure? Figuring out what is sin, what isn't sin. So, Steve, you're shaking your head no. I don't have any problem. I don't have any pressure. All right. All right. So, there are people like Steve who are like, I'm... I know exactly 
what's right and what's wrong in these things. <laughs> well, I always go back to all things not or all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Okay, well that works on some things, right? But there are other things that it doesn't work on, because some things maybe we might. The issue is whether or not it is actually permissible or not. Not all things are permissible, right? There are some things that are permissible in the sense of they're matters of Christian liberty, but there are other things that aren't. Okay, so yeah, so this is the question because let's if we go back to these. Was anyone saying that? Would anyone say that the Bible has nothing to say about these things? No. Like within the church, moral confusion within the church means that people have different ideas about what the Bible says. So someone says, "Go over here. Confronting sin equals judgmentalism." Well, the Bible says we are not under law, but under grace. Bam. End of story. Right there. Right. So a lot of times these are these are issues about which there's. The, the issue is, how do we know? So, what I want to suggest is we always have to ask the question, by what standard? In order to determine what is sin and what isn't sin, we have to have the right standard. So, if you go back to the moral confusion of the world, you see very qu- quickly that the issue of what standard we're using is so critical. If you are using the sort of moral standard of, 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 of the latest moral standard laid down by a certain group within our society, well, then you're going to come away with different answers about what's right and wrong. But we have to ask ourselves, what standard are, should we use as Christians? So that's, that's always the question. By what standard do we determine what sin, what is sin, what isn't? And we certainly can't use man-made moral standards. So let me ask you this. Why can't you just use man-made moral standards? They're changed. They're always changing, right? They're from man. They're just from man. Why is that a problem? Man is sinful. And every man did that with right in his own eyes. Yeah, so first of all, man is sinful. And so if we just do what's right in our own eyes, we're in the book of Judges. That's not a good thing. Uh... So, so man is finite and man is corrupt. And so his standards that he makes are going to be limited, not ultimate. And they're going to be corrupted and tainted by sin. We need a better standard than man-made standards. I, I guarantee you this. All the people that think that they're on the, you know, the, the cutting edge of morality in our day, 30 years from now, guess what? They're going to be regressive. Their values are going to be considered out of date. That, that can't be how we should determine morality. We have to have a better standard than just man-made standards. Only God's moral standard should be the one that we use when we're asking the question, what is sin and what isn't? And why should we use God's moral standard? Yeah. Yeah, so first of all, he's, it's unchanging because it's rooted in a God and his moral character that is immutable, right? <laughs> that never changes. And because he's God, he is perfect in every aspect of his character. So God is the only one who can provide us with a perfect and unchanging moral standard. So if we want to say that murdering people because of their race 
is wrong, objectively wrong, I don't care where you live, what country you live in, what time period you live in, it's always objectively wrong, you can't use man-made standards. Some country might decide that in their country they think it's right. In fact, that has happened. So you, you have to have a standard that is above that. Only God's moral character is going to provide you with that standard. And also, we should also say that because he's the creator, so he made everything, he gets to set the rules in his creation. In fact, this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really all about, wasn't it? God made a paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. It was perfect. He gave them every tree of the garden. But he set that one tree designated as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, don't eat of that tree. What did that represent? We talked about this before. It represented a boundary that Adam and Eve and all humanity were to recognize that they didn't have the right to determine what was right and wrong. They need to respect God and submit to God as the one who determined right and wrong. When they took of the tree, Satan deceived them by saying, has God really said, no, you shall not die if you eat of that tree. In other words, God's not telling you the truth. He's just holding you back from something better. And so when they took of that tree, they were saying to God, you know what, we think we know what's best and what's right for us, right? It was humanity taking to themselves the right to determine what was right and wrong for them. Autonomous, human self-determination and sovereignty. And we say, really, that's the, that's the root of all moral chaos in the world. And that's what the book of Judges really says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what happened? Moral and spiritual chaos and degeneration. So we need God God's moral character, God's moral standards are the standard that we use as Christians when we say what is sin and what isn't. Now, where do we find God's moral standards? Well, they are revealed to man in his law. Now, there's a sense in which that law is revealed to every single human being. Why? Right. Romans 2 talks about how we have the work of the law. When you see man who doesn't have the law, doesn't have the Ten Commandments, for instance, doing what the law requires, it shows you that the work of the law is written on his heart. Or another way of putting that is God has made us in his image and stamped us, as it were, with a conscience so that I don't care where you live in the world or what age you live in the world, if someone comes along and takes your stuff, you know that's wrong. And I don't care if you say stealing really isn't wrong. If someone comes along and steals your stuff, you know it's wrong, right? You're fine with people, you know, robbing and looting in other contexts, but not if it's your stuff. So we have this uh, law written upon our hearts as human beings made in God's image, but in addition to that, God has also revealed his moral will in, in time and space, in various laws that have been written down in Scripture. So, we know what sin is and what it isn't by using the standard of God's law, which is nothing more than the revelation of his moral will rooted in his own holy character. Now, 
We see this in Scripture, don't we? Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Later on in Romans 7.7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You remember it says, I didn't know. There's a sense in which he said, I didn't know about coveting until I heard, You shall not covet. And then he said, And then my coveting was increased (laughs) uh, all the more. So here we know that the law reveals to us our sin. It's just like, in some ways, it could be compared to a mirror, where you don't know all the blemishes on your face until someone sticks a mirror in front of you and they go, whoa, they were always there. In other words, you don't say that sin doesn't exist if there's no law, but what we're saying is that the law gives us the knowledge of sin, of what is right and what is wrong, because it reveals to us God's moral will for us as human beings, And that moral will for us as human beings is rooted in his own holy and righteous character. Okay. The question, though, is, what is the law? What are the moral standards of the law for us as human beings? Well, I want to talk, first of all, at the general level, that the law is summarized in certain commands. You guys all know where I'm going here, right? Okay, so would someone read... Someone volunteer to read Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Could someone read that? Just whoever gets there wants to read it, just start reading. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. How far do you want me to go? Uh, through verse 40. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so you see, he's, he's essentially saying that these two, just these two commandments are fundamental to all the other commandments. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything else that is revealed about God's will for his people in the scriptures could be summarized by these two commandments. In other words, another way of putting it is, if you were to able to keep these two commandments, you would keep all the rest of God's moral will, all the other laws. And you notice that first off, it begins vertically. Mm-hmm. True morality begins with, by the way, the Lord. And if you, if you look at these, you know that he's actually citing two, two Old Testament commands. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the second is in Leviticus 19.18. So he takes two commands from the Old Covenant law. So when it says, you shall love the Lord, who's it talking about? The God of the Bible, right? (laughs) The one true and living God, Yahweh, he reveals himself as. So this is not the God of Islam. This is not the God of Hinduism. This is not, you know, whatever concept of the divine is in other religions, such as Hinduism or Taoism. This is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible, the Bible has the audacity to say, Jesus said, all true morality begins with love for Yahweh, for the one true and living God, the God revealed in Scripture. And we must love him with all our being. And then, flowing out of that, as it were, out of love for God, 
we love our neighbor. And how much do we love them? In the same way that we would love ourselves, to the extent that we love ourselves. All right, so there's a sense in which all true morality, God's will for humanity, could be summarized in those two. Now, they were given to Israel, but there is a transcendence to these commands. They don't only apply to Israel. You would never say, well, these, that's good for Israel, but we would, God would never impose that on the rest of human beings. Okay, but beyond that, the law is also summarized by a larger list of commands, which we would call the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments that were revealed to Israel on Mount Sinai when God entered into the Old Covenant with them. Now, if someone would be willing to read these, I think it's, we need to let these commands fall fresh upon our hearts. And what we're going to see is, there are, yes, there are certain elements of the commandments that apply you know, in time and space to the nation of Israel, but that there are moral principles prescribed to Israel that transcend Israel that we would say apply to every human being. In fact, when Paul says the work of the law is written on the heart, if you look in the context, that law that he's talking about is the law expressed in the ten words. Okay, so let's uh, someone read Exodus 21 through 17. I know that's a long passage, so... Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed on the Sabbath day and made it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave, or his female slave, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay. Let me ask you this. Is there, do you see any connection between those two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, and these ten commandments? What's the connection? Not all respect. You know, if you love God, the first, what, four commandments? Right. And then the rest of them are... Right. right. Each other, if you love your neighbor, you wouldn't right. do these things to them. Right. So there's a the, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you see a parallel with the first four commandments, uh, and some might even say the fifth commandment as well. In one sense, why? Right Honor your father and your mother. How would that relate to God? Well, he is our father. Well, yeah, but I think. It is talking about your human parents. 
He's the one that granted them authority. Right, because, I, the, you know, God designates authorities in our life and that when you honor your father and mother, you're, you're honoring God himself. But regardless of whether you put the fifth commandment into the, in, into the second category or the first, there is this parallel, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does that look like? You shall have no other gods besides him. You shall never try to worship him through by way of a carved image or any likeness of anything in creation. You shall not take his name in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? And then, love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. So you see, there's a sense in which the law could be summarized in the two great commandments, and the law could be summarized in these ten great commandments, these ten commandments which sort of flesh out in a, a little more extended summary the two great commandments. When you take away the first commandment, yeah. love the Lord thy God, then that's where man gets into this horizontal, that's my understanding of what love is. Because if you don't love God first, you don't have it within your heart to right. love someone else as yourself. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll talk more about this, but can you actually keep this the second table of the law in a true and ultimate sense, the last six, without keeping the first four? I mean, on the Sabbath, right? You can't. So the Sabbath justify like you have. Yeah, you have to keep all of it, right? You can't just say, "Oh, well, that's not for our time anymore." But so we can kill people now. Yeah, well, so let's hang the Sabbath up here for a second, the fourth commandment. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But but you can see that if the, while there is some question around the Sabbath, because Christians actually, the church, don't keep the Sabbath command as it is articulated here, do they? No. Well, but no, they don't, because what does it say? The seventh day. So... The, the question surrounding the, the fourth commandment, is there an, a moral principle there of resting on one day of the week that is actually now realized in the Lord's Day or not? Is the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath? right? But no one except Seventh-day Adventists keep the commandment, or, or Jews who still are um, consider themselves as under the Old Covenant. Is it true that that's the only commandment that wasn't reiterated in the New Testament? Well, yeah, there's debate about it, right? So we'll not unpack all the, the <laughs> debate about the Sabbath day. So those who would be of more confessional reform traditions would uh, affirm uh, the perpetuity of the fourth commandment, you would say, in the Lord's day, that the Lord's day is the way, by observing the Lord's day, that's how you keep the fourth commandment. And then there are others who would be, who would say, yes, we should keep the Lord's day. That is a thing out of itself, the day that we gather for worship as the new covenant people, but we don't observe it as a Sabbath. In other words, the principle of resting from your labors isn't perpetuated, isn't carried over to the Lord to the Lord's day, right? So that's a debate within the church today, and there'd be good, solid believers on both sides of that issue, but we won't get totally into that. But just to say that the moral principles in the Ten Commandments are principles that, again, 
Yes, they're given to Israel, but you can see that there is a, a moral quality to them that in, unless God's character were to change, you could never change these laws, could you? You never say that. Well, old covenant, yeah, you shall not murder, but new covenant, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Of course not. Of course not. And, the, and, and you would see that these flesh out the, the two great commandments. They show you what it means to love the Lord your God and what it means to to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, how do we know what sin is and what sin isn't? Well, we, through the law. And what is the law? Well, it's summarized in the two great commandments and the, and the ten commandments. Now, there is the question, does the old covenant law that we just read, these commands, does it still tell us what is sin and what isn't? Because we're, we're not God's old covenant people as Christians, are we? We're God's new covenant people. So as the change of the covenant, does that mean that the old covenant law doesn't, doesn't still tell us what is sin and what isn't? doesn't apply to us anymore. As, we, as I mentioned, we're not under the law. We're under grace. Well, there, is a, there is a sense in which that is true, but what I'm asking is something more specific. Does the old covenant law still tell us what is sin and what isn't? The two great commandments, the ten commandments. Well, God's moral character doesn't change. We know that. He's immutable. So God's moral standards for humanity don't change. In other words, you you couldn't say that those commands change unless you would say that God's character itself changes. Now, some old covenant laws were not rooted in God's moral character, but had a temporary purpose in redemptive history which was fulfilled in Christ so that they ended with the old covenant. When Christ came, their purpose in history passed away. So, for instance, the laws regarding feasts and festival days, the laws regarding the sacrificial system, all the sacrifices, the priesthood, etc., and the civil laws for the nation of Israel. In other words, you know, civil punishments for certain... Uh, things that people did wrong and and other kinds of civil laws that those had a temporary a role in redemptive history it's not that they were rooted in the unchanging moral standards of God's character um, and so they could be abrogated you know Jesus pronounced all foods clean and so the laws regarding the dietary laws of the old covenant they weren't transcendent moral principles they were temporary regulations for the nation of Israel that changed when Christ arrived. Now, there are other old covenant laws which are rooted, which were rooted in God's moral character, and therefore they continue to be valid expressions of his moral standards for mankind. So, are Christians under the old covenant law? No, we're not in the old covenant. But does the old covenant law continue to say to us what is right and wrong where it reflects the moral character of God? Absolutely. And in that sense, we could say they're still binding on us. We don't have the freedom to murder or commit adultery or steal or lie. Yes, we must strive to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just because uh, we're under the new covenant doesn't change that because they still reveal to us God's moral standards for his people. So, the two great commandments, the Ten Commandments, and Old Covenant civil laws. Now you say, wait a second, but you just said that civil laws from the nation of Israel had a temporary purpose. Yes, in one sense they did. So, 
for instance, the law about when you build a house, you have to put a railing around your parapet. That was a, one of the civil laws in the Old Covenant. And that law doesn't carry over directly into the church, such that every person who builds a house as a Christian needs to put a railing around their parapet. But is there something about that law which still speaks to us today? What would it be? Safety. A, a, a principle, right? A principle of, of justice. That if you're going to... That was what underlay that command, right? That you can't just build something and have no regard for the safety of those who would be there. That you should regard the physical safety of people. And so there's a principle of fairness and justice and rightness that lay behind that law. In that sense, that... Old Covenant civil law still has something to say to us today. That we would say, yeah, Christians, uh, when they build a pool, (laughs) they should put a railing around it so that people don't fall into it. Little kids don't fall into it. Now, it's not to say that's a a law, like a firm law for every Christian, but it's saying that Christians should have these should have regard for the for the principles of equity and justice that are there in the Old Covenant civil laws. Okay, now There is some ambiguity about the fourth commandment. I just talked about that, um, so I'll I'll leave that there. We don't need to get into the Sabbath today. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you from the New Testament how the Old Covenant law is used in the New Testament to reveal and speak to the church as Christians regarding what is sin and what isn't, regarding God's moral will for His people. So I've listed the Ten Commandments here. As we go through these verses, and I'm just going to read them for the sake of time, but I want you guys to point out to me where you see one of the Ten Commandments there. Okay? So I'm going to pause, and I'll say, which of the commandments is is, um, being used here? Which of the Ten Commandments? Okay? And then you guys give me the answer. So, uh, let's see. Let me get back here. This is a test. (laughs) Okay, so Luke, uh, and not just the Ten Commandments, but the two great commandments as well. So I just kind of gave it away. But Luke 10, 27. And he, that is Jesus, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. (laughs) So... What commandment is being? What commandments are being referred to by Jesus and affirmed there as right and true? The two great commandments, right? Okay, Galatians chapter five, verse fourteen. So, lest you say yes, but Jesus was speaking to a member of the Jewish community who were still under the old covenant. The new covenant hadn't been inaugurated yet, uh, but. Here we come to Galatians 5.14. This is a letter to the New Testament church. And what does Paul say? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So you see, that's one of the two great commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's provocative about this is that he says the whole law is fulfilled in just that commandment. In other words, if you just kept that commandment, you would keep the whole law. You say, well, how could that be? It doesn't. What, what about love the Lord your God? Is, yeah, if the only way to truly love your neighbor the way that God wants you is if you were also loving him, right? 
uh, James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do you think that James still views that great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as valid, a valid expression of God's will for us as Christians? Certainly seems to say so, right? If you're showing partiality, remember, in the context, it's a rich man comes into your church and you say, oh, 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 sit over here. But a poor man comes in and you say, yeah, just sit over there on the floor. If you show partiality like that, you are violating the law. It still applies, right? It still shows you what's right. You're a transgressor if you show partiality like that. So the two great commandments are there, used and applied in the New Testament. What about the Ten Commandments? Well, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think the Sermon on the Mount applies to us as Christians? I mean, it is Jesus' explicit instruction to us as his disciples. It's his sermon to his disciples. Moses went up on a mountain and received the law of God and gave it to Israel. Jesus went up on a mountain and delivered his law to his disciples. We're under the law of Christ. So, Matthew 5.18, he says explicitly, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So did Jesus teach that the law uh, had no bearing upon us as Christians in the kingdom? No. So then you say, okay, well, where do we see him teaching the law? Well, verse 21. You have heard that it was said in days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what commandment is that? What commandment is from the Old Covenant is he appealing to? The Sixth Commandment. Is he, when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is he annulling the Sixth Commandment? No. What's he doing? Reiterating it, but also going beyond just external behavior to the heart, right? And, and by the way, he had said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you, you can't be my disciple, right? He's saying, scribes and Pharisees just focus on the external. They say, well, I've never murdered anyone. He's saying, let me show you what that law really means, right? If you are angry with your brother in your heart, you violated that law. Okay, so he's teaching a deeper righteousness, But he's still affirming the command. What about um, verses 27 and 28? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Which one is that? What's that? Yeah, seventh commandment right there. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. So is he nulling the seventh commandment? No, he's saying keep it. But keep it in, in a deeper way than what the Pharisees would say. And then, let me show you one more. What about verses 33 and 34? 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. And then he goes down to basically lay out the principle, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, be true to your word. Anything more from this than this comes from evil. Now, when he says... You have heard from those of old, you shall not swear falsely. He's actually citing Leviticus 19.12. Let me read to you what Leviticus 19.12 says. It says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Ah, he's been talking about the Ten Commandments. Do you hear an echo of one of the Ten Commandments there? Which one? Three. Three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the, the teaching about oaths is falls under the the heading of the category of the moral principle established in the third commandment. He's taking it deeper. He's showing how how we can violate it and how we should keep it. So did Jesus throw out the Ten Commandments and say, we're not under those anymore, they don't matter? No, they continue to be abiding expressions of his moral will. What about in the epistles? Let me just show you one extended treatment of Christian morality that we see in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go to Ephesians 4 and starting in verse 25. Remember, Paul has said, don't be like the Gentiles. This is not how you've learned Christ, but rather put off the old man, put on the new man, which is being created in true righteousness and holiness. So he's commanded this put off and put on dynamic, right? Put off that which belongs to your old sin nature, which is corrupted by sin, and put on this new nature that you have in Christ. In other words, be Christ-like. And then he's going to tell you what it looks like to put off the old, put on the new. So the first is, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So what command does that reflect? Nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Oh, we've heard about this one before. Which command does that reflect? The sixth commandment, right? Where Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've already violated that command. Go, let's go down to the next one. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ah, what's that one? Eight, Eight right? Okay, let's go down to chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Which one is that? Seven and ten. Seven and ten, yeah, you got it. Extra points for you, Janelle. <laughs> you shall not commit adultery, right? The whole realm of sexual morality and covetousness, right? The two are, are connected, aren't they? Because even in the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, wife right? Okay, and then what about verse 5? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater. Ah, there's another What's that one? One, two, two, right? The whole realm of graven image, you shall know over the gods before me. Do you see, the Ten Commandments are, like his t- 
teaching to the church regarding God's will for us as his new covenant people is shot through the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's being guided along in some ways by the Ten Commandments. In fact, one of them he cites explicitly in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, which one's that? Five. Five. In fact, pretty much all these are in there somewhere, right? <laughs> like, And there's words that trigger in your mind. Oh yeah, he's actually referring to, he's thinking back to the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments continue to be uh, a valid expression of God's moral will for his people. The Ten Commandments continue to show what sin is and what righteousness is. All right, and then let me just show you this. The civil laws for Israel are reapplied in the New Testament in different ways. Even though we're not under them as as if we were a geopolitical nation and they are our civil laws for our community, yet the principles of justice behind those civil laws are reflected in New Testament commands as well. So, for instance, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, let me just ask you, is he negating the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle, which is nothing other than a citation of Exodus 21-24, and also Leviticus 24-20, and also Deuteronomy 19-21, a principle that's articulated throughout the Old Covenant. Is he negating it? Saying it's not right anymore? No. What principle of justice is being established in the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? How, How would we put it in modern lingo? What was that, Steve? Restitution. Restitution. In other words, the punishment should fit the crime. That would be another way of putting it. So if, if someone steals a grape off of the royal vineyard and gets his whole arm cut off, you see, <laughs> there's something wrong there. <laughs> That's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's not a just punishment. There should, the, the punishment should fit the crime such that there's genuine restitution done for a wrong. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, for you, I want you to, be, to go beyond just strict justice to show mercy, right? <laughs> Forbearance. So he's not negating the principle of justice. He's just calling you to say sometimes, leave vengeance to the Lord, <laughs> and he, he will repay, and you overcome evil with good. But he's not negating the principle. God had laid down the principle as a principle of justice. And when we see that reflected in the church, that, that too is, should be reflected in the church, that the punishment, if when there is, whether it's with your children, whether it's in, with respect to church discipline, that should be just. But it's just that we should also be merciful. And, we are, and this is tied in with the fact that we are not a civil society as Israel was. Matthew 18, 16. Let's look at this. This is in the famous passage on church discipline, right? If a brother has sinned against you, go to him. If he does not listen, take one or two others, it says, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Did you see the civil law there? By the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
That was a civil ordinance for Israelite courts. It's a citation of Deuteronomy 19.15. And also you see it reflected in other passages as well. And what's he saying? That civil law reflected a principle of justice that should be also reflected in your own church courts, in other words, when you, bring, when you have to bring church discipline. One more. Let's look at uh, an intriguing one, 1 Timothy 5, 18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, well, there, is a, there was a civil ordinance of not muzzling your ox when it's treading out the grain, but letting it eat some of the crops that it's harvesting. But he takes the principle of justice there and applies it in the church by way of, you should pay people who are laboring in the word among you. Because it's not right to withhold from them some of the fruits, physical fruits, for their labor among you. Just like it would be wrong to unjust to muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So again, a civil law, a principle of justice behind it, applied in the church. So we don't just write off the civil law as having nothing to do with us. Even though it doesn't apply one-to-one, it still has application. All right, And so, how do we figure out what's sin and what isn't? We look to the to the law of God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And while not every law reflects you know, transcendent moral principles, we have the two great commandments, we have the ten commandments, we have the principles of equity and justice reflected in the old covenant civil laws. And using this, we can evaluate what is right and what is wrong for us as Christians. Now, it should also be said Because you say, well, what about all the other commands? What about all the other commands in the Old Covenant? What about all the other commands in the New Testament? What do we do with those? We use them. I mean, the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament contain a much larger number of commands which flesh out the moral standards laid out in the two great commandments and the Ten Commandments. They provide extensive and detailed guidance for determining what is and isn't sin for mankind more broadly and the church more specifically. In other words, God gave two great commandments, then he fleshed those out in in the Ten Commandments, and then he fleshed them out further in all the other commands. Every command in Scripture can some way be traced back to the moral principles established in those, but they give us even more fodder to work with. And we should use all the law of God to the extent that it reflects God's moral character in determining what is right and wrong. Now, I should also say, and we don't have time to go through these, but there's another category of laws that also are important. And that is creation standards. So, the image of God, God's creation of human gender, God's creation of human marriage, God's creation and intention for sexuality, Uh, God's creation, male headship in the church and in the home, human government. All of these are things that have moral implications for us, not because they're rooted in the eternal, immutable character of God, but rather because they are rooted in the creation design that he has, the design for his creation. So, for instance, human sexuality and marriage, that's not going to last forever, right? 
it's not an immutable eternal moral principle because Jesus said in the new creation, what? No marriage. No, marriage, no giving in marriage. But as long as we live in this age, these define what is right and wrong for us because they reflect God's design for creation. And so each of these verses, you can see the New Testament author appealing to the natural order in terms to, to establish what is right and wrong. So this one here, this is just an example. He talks about men committing shameful acts with men and women with women, women burning in their desire. Remember what he says? He says to do what is against nature. So while these are not necessarily transcendent principles you know, rooted in the unchanging character of God, they define what is right and wrong because they reflect his design for his creation. And anything that is contrary to the design of God for his creation is morally wrong. So let me just close with a few observations here. Number one, we can see some things about that the law shows us about sin just in a general way. Sin cannot be defined <laughs> apart from the God of the Bible. Sin is against God, first and foremost. And what this means is that if you don't have faith in God, you're just, everything you do is sin. You, remember Hebrews 11 through 11, 6? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when we were living apart from God in a state of rebellion against God, everything we did was tainted with that rebellion. We couldn't do anything good in an ultimate sense in that condition. It's what's required is a repentance and a, a posture of trust and faith in God that then allows us to do what is truly right. Because otherwise, we're living in constant rebellion to the first table of the law, right? <laughs> so sin and righteousness begin with God. Also, sin begins in the heart. It's not enough to, to talk about behavior we have to talk about the motivations and desires and thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's where sin and righteousness begin. Also, we can sin without doing anything in, in our body. I can stand here like this and do nothing except stand here. I can still sin, huh? Probably am, somehow. Right? Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery against her, right? That could be done like this. You're not doing anything in your body. That's an important principle. Also, God's moral standard, we see from the law of God, is much different than man-made ones. And so you'll find that people will look at the law of God and be absolutely morally revolted and outraged. Why? Because God's moral standard is often quite different. In fact, human beings tend to do this. They tend to make what God says is right, wrong. And what God says is wrong, right. And so we just have to expect that. And then finally, we sin far more and in far worse ways than we typically think. When we actually look at the law of God, it helps us to see the true extent of our sin. And then finally, many things that people think are sin are not. And this is another important one. People will want to impose upon you all kinds of standards of sin. Say, that's a sin. That's a sin if you do that. And you say, well, wait a second. By what standard are you using? Let's look at God's law. 
According to God's law, there's nothing about that that's inherently sinful, right? And so our conscience has to be trained not by just what people say is right, sinful, even within the church, but we go back to God's law. We say, well, what, by, what, by what standard? If we use God's standard, is that really a sin? All right, that's the end. I'm way over time again, of course. So, But we did go through it kind of quickly, so I just knew there was a lot of material there. Come, feel free to come and talk with me. Um, and condemn me, but just make sure that you're using the law of God as your standard if you're going to do that. (laughs) All right. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your law, O God, that it is a, a, a great and precious thing to actually know what is right, what is true, what is good in your sight, and what is wrong and evil and wicked, so that we might be convicted of our sin, that we might repent of our sin, that we might see our need for the forgiveness of sin that Christ provides. And also, Lord, that as we are indwelt by the Spirit and our hearts are made new, that the law becomes like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and shows us the way that is truly right in your sight that leads to blessing and life and prospering. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your law. We say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Oh God, let us be those who are guided by the moral standard of your holy and righteous law rather than just our own man-made standards or the man-made standards of our society. But Lord, we know that it will be very difficult to do that. So give us the courage and the strength to do that as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.